Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Uh, the central exhortation of our passage this morning, to seek things above, or otherwise to be heavenly-minded, is seen in our time as mere escapism at best, right? It's just a way to get out of the world. It's a way to dole yourself from real life and kind of comfort yourself till it's all over. So it's mere escapism at best, and in fact harmful at worst. Johnny Cash saying, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. And John Lennon asked us to imagine that there is no heaven above us only sky, to imagine all people living for today. So that's the problem, apparently. Heavenly-mindedness comes at the expense of the here and now. And to be honest, there is some truth in that criticism. There is a version of heavenly-mindedness that is very much like that. What does it matter what happens to the world? It's all going to burn anyway. Or it's all going to get much, much worse, so we shouldn't do anything about it, but just wait till it's all over. In this sense, heaven is an excuse to mail it in on earth, right? To not care about what happens in this life. Now, when the scriptures say that we are to be heavenly minded or to seek the things above, is that what they envision? Complacency, indifference, um, sort of a bomb shelter mentality where we wait it out and, well, everyone else can figure it out themselves. Is that what it envisions? Hardly. On the contrary, without heaven, earth becomes meaningless. Without transcendence, the everyday matters of life lose their glory. When things above are gone, we are left, not with John Lennon's utopia, everything all well and happy, but what we have is people living for nothing. None of it matters. It was C.S. Lewis who said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It's the reverse. When you're heavenly minded, then you become earthly good. Then you actually can do something in this life. So what we're going to talk about is what it means this morning to seek the things above. We're going to do that this week and the next, but this time, this morning, we're going to focus specifically on what it means to seek the things above, what we're being told about ourselves, about our lives, and about the sort of spirituality and faith that we should have in this world. And then I want to look at next week how this actually plays out in a more practical manner and how it actually makes us of earthly good, to use Cash's phrase. So I want to start this morning with that mysterious and wonderful phrase there um, in verse 3. Your life, again, think about what's being said here. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the whole Christian life is predicated upon faith. We walk by faith, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We walk by faith, um, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, correction. 
We walk by faith, not by sight. And those two are opposed to one another. Now, I don't need faith, right, when I have sight. I can see the object before me. I don't need to believe anything because I can verify it by my own eyes. Now, faith, on the other hand, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, is the conviction of things not seen. It's the conviction of things not seen. So what faith does is it perceives what is hidden from natural sight, what is not obvious, what is not clear, what is not manifest. It sees that, and then it takes its bearings from that. Faith sees what is unseen and then structures its whole life according to that and not according to appearances. Thus, founded upon faith, the real substance of Christianity is unseen. Right? We walk by faith. And that means to say that the whole of the Christian life is unseen. It's not, it's not currently here yet. We're awaiting it. It's not obvious. And so what this implies is that, that the truth about ourselves, right, about our lives as Christians, is also unseen. That the truth about ourselves is also unseen. But what, what do I mean by that? Well, it's that what the gospel says about you, about us. It's not obvious or apparent. Right? Does that make sense? What the gospel says about you, what it proclaims of who you are in Christ, if we're going by merely appearances, by what sight can see, it's not obvious. Right? It's not clear. Now, the gospel says that we are made complete in Christ. That we are justified in Christ. That in Christ we're seated in the heavenly places. That in Christ we need nothing. And that we have it all. That's something that is not consistent with sight. On the contrary, what we can see and what we can judge about ourselves based on appearances is a completely different picture. We look at our lives and what we see is not completeness, but brokenness, sinfulness, failure. We look at ourselves and we see not justification, that I stand before God righteous, that I can come before his throne without any fear of judgment but complete acceptance in Christ. I don't see that, but rather what I see and feel and what is day-to-day experience is condemnation, struggling with the guilt of sin and the repeated failures in life. So it seems that we all struggle in one way or another to believe the truth about ourselves, what the gospel says. The struggle is to walk by faith rather than by sight. And now that matters, right, that we walk by faith and not by sight because most everything in our lives runs downstream from our self-understanding. The most important thing is your understanding of God. That determines everything truly your theology, but secondly, the way you view yourself, that also affects everything in your life. And so if we look to those outward appearances, as I've said, rather than to things unseen, soon we are going to slip into a sense of despondency, only seeing again our repeated sin and failure. And what happens when that's what we see is that our lives will take a shape contrary to the truth. 
And rather than living in victory, we will live in defeat, always condemned and never quite able to stand and live the Christian life. Now that is where our passage comes in. Chapter 3, Colossians, verse 2 and 3. It reads, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For, now here's the reason, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So our lives, in other words, what's being told to us here is that our lives are not what they appear to be. You have died. And that there is more to us than what meets the eye. Your lives are hidden with Christ in God. So the true character of our lives, right, who you really are, Not what appearances tell you, not even what you think you are, but who you really are according to the truth of the gospel announced to us in the scriptures is hidden and unseen. It's buried deep within the transcendent God awaiting to be revealed when Christ returns. Hi, daughter. (laughs) So we died, right, the apostle says. And what can be known and understood about ourselves through sight is just not the bottom line. You died to that measure of assessment. You died to that way of looking at yourself. Now, the apostle continues, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So the truth about ourselves is much deeper and higher than mere appearance. It's concealed, deep within God himself. So our lives, right, are up there and not here, down below. So hence our identities in this world are trivialized. Look at, again, how radical what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. Verse Chapter 2 now, verse 20 and 21, he says, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, Do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? So he he chides us and the Colossians for living inconsistently. He says, if you've actually died with Christ, and you have, then why are you still living as if you were living in the world? Right? Why are you still going about your life as if this were actually your home? Implying, right, that we're not, or rather that this is not our home. If you have the NIV, I think it it really gets the point across well. He says, as though you still belonged to the world. As though this were still the real thing. As if this were what determined and defined you. So we are in the world, physically speaking, but we are not of the world in a more fundamental sense. Our life is no longer here. It's, well, rather... As we read, verse 20, we have died with Christ. Verse 12, we've been buried with him. Verse 13, we've been made made alive together with him. Chapter 3, verse 1, we've been raised up with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4, we will be revealed with him in glory. So our lives, you see, are bound to Christ. They are no longer merely ours. It's not like I have my little life that's independent and autonomous and it's my little possession. 
My life is bound up with Christ's life. Indeed, the apostle says, again, in another exceedingly radical statement, chapter 3, verse 4, Christ is our life. He is your life. And he is above with the Father. So rather than being in the world, sight, our lives are now fixed in the heavenly places, faith. And when Christ ascended on high, after he had defeated the powers of darkness, of sin, and of uh, everything that is opposed to us, he took our lives with him. He rescued us, chapter 1, verse 13, from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of light in his ascension. So though we're still in the world, sights, our lives are with him above faith. But notice, the truth is, is, is so much more profound than, than just that. Our lives are with Christ above, right? We're united to him. But where exactly is he? Paul says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So Christ ascended after his victory back to the Father from whom he came. He did not return to heaven generally because God transcends heaven. It's a created place for all of its glory and majesty. Behold, Solomon says in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 when he dedicates the temple, he says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. God's not in heaven. He transcends it. So when Christ ascended, He went through the heavens, past the angels and the archangels, past the heavenly realm, the principalities and powers, back into the very life of God who transcends everything. So it's one thing, right, for the scriptures to say that our lives are fixed above in heaven. That's amazing, but that's not all. That would be enough. It's quite another thing when the scripture says that our lives... Who you are is hidden with Christ, and Christ is in God. Our lives are planted and buried deep within the very life of the Creator God. Not just in heaven, not just on earth, but with Him we will be partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter chapter 1. So hence, right, what the Scripture says about us, we're with Christ, hence It's very natural then to come to this conclusion that our lives are hidden from us, right? That that we are separated from who we truly are. One day when Christ returns, the true nature of our lives will be revealed, but that time's not yet. And so as it stands, there is this distance between who we are and who we will be, what appearance tells us and what faith tells us. So I look upon my life now, and you look upon your life, and it seems one way. It seems shattered, and it seems incomplete. But we know that's not the case. We walk by faith and not by sight. I have been made complete in Christ. You have been made complete in Christ. That is who you are. And that life is hidden with Christ in God. And that truth can only be seen and apprehended through faith in defiance of appearances. We are to believe what the gospel says about us, the hidden truth about our lives. And that is where genuine spirituality and genuine victory in this life starts. 
It's with faith. We look to things which are not seen, or we do not look to things which are seen, but to things which are unseen. Because if you go by, again, by sight, you're never going to get there. The mountain is too high. There's too much of a gap between. But if you go by faith, you can offload guilt. You can offload shame. And then you can actually start walking and living the Christian life. By faith, we are to believe what we do not see. That you are holy and blameless. That you are complete in Christ. And the reward of that faith will be then to see what you believe. That will start to become a reality in your life. So the Christian life, to end this first point, begins and ends with faith. It's all about faith. So, moving now from faith and our lives being hidden with God, we're coming to this next element of if that is true, then how should, or, or rather, what should our spirituality look like in this life, right? How should our lives look consistently with that? So among our three main enemies in our lives, the flesh is the one that we struggle against the most. So we can retreat from the world, right? That's one enemy. When it's maybe our workplace, maybe when it's even our own family, or our circle of friends, and we find ourselves being pulled into the ways of the world, we can retreat. We can find strength among believers. Um, we can take shelter um, from dark spiritual powers. That's the second enemy, right? We can find shelter, um, again, among one another. But the one thing that we cannot run from is the flesh, because it's always with us. All right, we take our corrupted and mortal bodies everywhere we go. And that's what the flesh is. Now, the bodies that we have, don't be mistaken, they are good, but they've been weakened by sin. Remember what Jesus says in the night that um, he is arrested and his disciples betray them. He tells them to pray, he says, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's weak, and it's easily caught up um, and overcome by its desires. And so the natural appetites of our body that are good and God-given, because of sin, they're bent wildly out of proportion. So desire becomes lust, and hunger becomes gluttony, and the need for security and, and, and just basic things in human life become greed and envy and so on and so forth, right? These good things, good gifts, become terrible means of slavery in our lives. And we just can't run from the flesh. So a major concern for any religion, not just Christianity or, 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 or whatever, any religion, is to temper the flesh, right? It's, the goal is to try and bring its appetites under the control of the Spirit. And it seems that's what's going on here in Colossians. Remember this pseudo-religion that's being peddled to uh, the believers there in Colossae. And it seems that what they were saying is that by strictly adhering to their decrees, by abstaining from certain foods and drink, by treating the, the body severely, that somebody, if you obeyed these rules, could gain victory over the flesh, right? You would be able to live a quote-unquote spiritual life. 
And at first glance, this program, the apostle admits in verse 23, it has the appearance of wisdom. It makes sense. And, and, and right, it does, right, if we think about it. If the flesh is out of control, if our bodily desires have run wild, the way to reel them back in is through strict bodily discipline, right, to impose order and control over the desires of the flesh. And because that appearance is right and it seems like a good wisdom, what we find, even as Christians, is that we're always resorting to something like this. It's almost like a first instinct that when we sin, we, we then try to manage the flesh by making oaths and promises, swearing never again to uh, commit such and such a sin, and then we double down on our commitment, right? We tighten the bolts on the things that we watch and the things that we listen to. We create strict regimens of prayer and fasting, again, imposing order upon the sinful flesh. Again, it's an instinctual response. We think to ourselves, whether explicitly or implicitly, I need to try harder. That's the problem. I'm not doing enough. I need to be more committed. I need to double down and strengthen my will. Now, in, the, in themselves, all those things I just mentioned, they're not wrong. The Scripture recommends them in many places. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Tear it from you. If your um, right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat or I discipline my body and make it my slave. That way I won't be disqualified. And yet... The word that we have here in Colossians is clear. These things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So is there a contradiction? What's actually going on? Well, no, there's not a contradiction. Rather, it's that these methods and measures in and of themselves can do nothing. They are ineffective against the flesh. In and of themselves. Because when one resorts to this sort of way of overcoming sin and dealing with the flesh, what you're doing is you're fighting fire with fire. You're using the flesh to try and curb the flesh. And while if your will is really strong, you might be able to successfully fence yourselves in, the problem is not dealt with. Beneath that firmly disciplined exterior, the problem is still being nurtured. An apparent victory may continue for some time, but eventually the dam is going to break. Resolve will fade. Discipline will slack. And when it does, all of that that's been held up is going to come gushing out again. Now, what I've just described is the outside-in way of doing things, right? And it's what's opposed in our passage, and it's opposed by Jesus, and Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 15, he says to his disciples, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed from the man are what defile the man. So, these external measures inevitably fail because they cannot reach the heart. They cannot cut away its deadness. So kind of what you're doing is you're taking a wild animal and you're putting it within a very weak fence. And eventually it's going to break out. 
The heart remains fleshly and it continues to churn out evil things. It's merely rep- repressed, right? It's like, it's like when you were a kid and you would try to plunge the, the beach ball beneath the water and it would always come up and smack you in the face. You're just repressing it and it's only a matter of time before it has its way once more. Something else is needed. Now, and the reason these things aren't the answer is because, well, God sent his son to die on a cross and to be raised the third day. Right? That's what Romans chapter 8 says, that the law could not do this because it was weak through sin. Even the law of God, right, which was holy and which is holy and good and right, was overcome by the flesh. And what was good became something that was against us. Now, if the law of God couldn't do it, then certainly our will is not up to the task. The only one who can defeat the flesh is the Son of God, who died and rose again on our behalf, and the Spirit of God who has been sent forth into our hearts. So that's the only way to overcome the flesh, and it's through the gospel. It's through divine power. So, Again, you can imagine these teachers coming into the church and saying, okay, listen, you got, you got, you got Jesus, that's great, but now let's, let's get you doing these other things because that's what's really going to give you victory, right? You need to not eat these foods. You need to treat your body this way. You need to have these mystical visions and so on and so forth. But the gospel, right, what's been given to us starts in a much different place. It doesn't ask us to tighten our grip upon the flesh, but to recognize that the flesh has already been defeated. Remember last week, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The flesh, that thing which is constantly getting us down, the scripture says, has been rolled away. It's been put to death on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we ourselves, right, have died with him, and we've been raised to new spiritual life in Christ. Our lives are situated with him, hidden in God. So the apostle is going to have much more to say about putting the flesh to death, namely at the end of their chapter 3. But that comes second. First, we must seek the things above where our life is. We've died to a fleshly existence, and we are up above. So the flesh cannot be defeated by taking it head on, but by instead considering ourselves dead to it, and then alive to a new mode of existence. We have died to the world and to the flesh, and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God, and we must seek them out. Look again, uh, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So a heavenly reorientation comes first, right? So he doesn't, we're going to get to dealing with the flesh, but that's not where he starts. He says, before any of that, set your mind on things above. So there's a heavenly reorientation, and then we deal with the flesh. And then we deal with the flesh. It's overcome by first seeking things above, and that is making contact with our true lives. So the formula is not eliminate the flesh and then ascend to heavenly things. It's ascend to heavenly things and then eliminate the flesh. So it's faith before sight and not the other way around. We believe who we are and work from that place rather than 
we try to become something we're not. And what does it mean to seek the things above? Well, again, our lives are hidden with Christ and God. So to seek the things above is to seek our lives. It's to go searching for them as they're hidden first within Christ and then within God. It's to reorient our lives in the here and now according to who we will be in Christ. Now, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, they add some clarity. And I think these two passages are actually in dialogue. Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, you guys know the passage. Jesus says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Um, notice the word, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom, or his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these will be added to you. So to seek something, as Jesus is is using it here, um, is to be determined by it. Whatever you seek becomes the center of gravity around which everything else orbits. So in this case, the pagans, they seek after food and clothing, and that pursuit shapes their lives. Everything is bent toward that goal, such that heavenly matters are excluded. Because they seek clothing and they seek food, his kingdom and his righteousness are absent from them. But by contrast, we are to seek, to pursue, to order our lives around the kingdom, the things above. Our lives are to be poured into that mold. So to seek the things above is to have our lives determined by things above. And again, I'm just saying the same thing in a different way. Again, what is above? Well, Christ is above, and our lives are above. What's above is the promise of your completion and perfection in Christ, which is now hidden and unseen. So the apostle says, seek it, pursue it. Let that shape the whole of your life. And he himself is our example. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He has an entirely future-oriented focus, forgetting things behind, always reaching forward, and his one aim is to obtain the prize. And our lives above, hidden with Christ, that is the price. When Christ is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. He says, seek the things above. You know, now that my daughter is born, I can't stand to be away from her and my wife. Um, I selfishly went golfing yesterday. And I enjoyed it, but um, I was looking at my phone emotionally scrolling through photos while Trent was blasting bombs. Um, and that's just my life now, right? My, I mean, it always has been, but my wife and my daughter, that's my life. I can't get away from that. And when I'm gone from them, that's what I'm seeking, right? That's what I'm desiring, because my life is with them. I want to be with them. And that's close to what it means to seek the things above, to feel this profound sense of distance between our lives here and our lives as they are with Christ and God. 
To seek the things above is almost a kind of homesickness where the heart is drawn toward its natural home with Christ. So thus, what it means to seek the the things above is not a particular practice or discipline, right? It's not kind of one thing that we do among many things. It's the one thing that runs through everything we do. When we gather as a congregation, right, when we have our services, when you seek the Lord um, at home uh, with your family and as an individual, when we serve the poor and needy, when we do all the things that we do as Christians, we do those because we're seeking the things above. We're setting our hearts and minds on the goal. So, you know, I, I would just like to end this section with a quick question. What is the goal behind your labors? Right? Why is it that you're doing what you do? Is there a goal, or has it just become disinterested routine? That's what I find myself, found myself asking myself reading this. Here we are awakened from an earthly coma, Well, we're just kind of doing things because, well, it's what we're supposed to do. And we are awakened to, once again, this heavenly prize that we're called to. And it's fixed at the center of our vision. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, not here on earth. So the apostle says, seek it where it can be found. Seek it where it can be found. So we move now to from hiddenness to revealed, uh, to disclosure. So this truth about our lives has yet to come to us, and we have yet to come to it. We walk by faith and not by sight. We hope, Romans chapter 4, against hope. We labor in love, First Thessalonians 1. And the reward for an earthly life devoted to these three is glory. Our lives are united to Christ's life, and as he goes, we go. He's the forerunner, and we are the first fruits. He goes before us, and we're the harvest that comes later. So when he's revealed in glory on that coming day, then all this business about hiddenness, all this business about faith, about waiting, about trusting, will be over. Verse 4 of chapter 3, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So it's not merely our lives that are hidden, but Christ himself. The glorious truth about our Lord, the one whom we worship, has yet to be revealed in its fullness. Even to us, right? We see it, but only by faith, only through glimpses and shadows. It's kept back by the Father, stored away in his counsels until the fullness of time, the day of the revelation of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the one whom we worship, we do not see. He remains hidden. We see his glory only through faith. But on that day, it will be disclosed before all men as... um, Zephaniah and, or Zechariah, I'm not sure which one, Zephaniah or Zechariah and the prophet, um, uh, the apostle John says, they will look on him whom they pierced. So he will come to us in the victory of his death and resurrection, then in the fullness of his divine glory. 
his majesty will no longer be veiled, but manifest as it was on the Mount of Transfiguration when his, son, his face shone brighter than the sun and his clothes were whiter than any bleach could whiten them. His glory will shine and then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then the nations will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And never again, the scripture says, will they learn war. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This glory will come. The glory of Christ. But yet, and here's the thing, right? This glory is not going to be external to us. It's not something we're going to just see with our eyes. When Christ is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. His divine majesty is disclosed. When it's disclosed, our lives will be disclosed as well. So that same glory will shine through our lives for the first time, or rather in its completeness. We will be glorified alongside Christ because we're united to him. So maybe an image for you to have is the burning bush, right? God comes to dwell in the bush, and the bush burns, but it's not consumed. God's glory is there, but so is the created nature, and that will be us. Christ's divine glory will dwell within us. It will shine through us, but we ourselves will not be consumed. So, let me end just now with a word of exhortation or vindication. Our faith, which we exercise now in in defiance of appearances, will be vindicated. Faith will become sight. What you have believed about Christ, about yourself, will actually... It'll be given to you. That's the reward of continuing in faith. Our hope against hope will be vindicated. Our love for whom we do not see and for our fellow humans who also are lost and do not see him will be vindicated as well. And glory is going to be our inheritance. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. So coming now to communion, and I love ending here every week, because it gives us a chance to partake in faith. For when we partake, the apostle says, and we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, he says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death. We remind ourselves of this truth and we look forward to when it comes. So Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again and we will come with him in glory. So come receive the elements of communion now. Take them to your tables. Exercise your faith and we will partake as one body in just a moment.